0: Well, good morning. Let me tell you, you are absolutely going to love this message. Except, of course, those parts that you are not going to like at all. You're going to hate those parts. Absolutely hate them. That's how it goes, right? The real question, though, the the question that, that truly matters is this. How will you go about evaluating what it is that you hear? And then what are you going to do with it? If you judge this message, and you will judge this message, I mean, you've got to, right? You've got to decide whether you believe what is being said. And then you've got to decide whether you're going to submit to it or rebel against it. The question is, how are you going to make that decision? If you judge according to what you think or how you feel about it, if you, if you judge according to your own evaluation of it, well, it really, you've, you've missed the point of what it is that we're doing here. And you will have left at not having benefited at all from what it is that we do. And really, you'll only have yourself to blame because you will have made your thoughts, your perceptions the highest authority for your life. And really, you could have done that in a closet at home by yourself. But if you judge this and every message by whether or not it is faithful to the word of God, and if it is faithful, if you will then choose to accept it, to submit yourself to it, well then, you will have benefited from this time. and More than that, you will experience a change that is not just the result of your own thinking and your own willing, but rather you will experience the dynamic of the power of the Holy Spirit applying the word of God to your mind and to your heart. You know, honestly, what I think doesn't matter. I don't feel bad about that because what you think doesn't matter. (laughs) What matters is that you and I, that we submit ourselves to God's word. Amen? Well, our text this morning is Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 36, just a, a brief section of the 13th chapter of Luke's gospel. And it's there that we see how Jesus responds to opposition both from government authorities and from his own culture. I know that's a very theoret- fairly theoretical concept for us, but uh, maybe we'll find an application somewhere in there. Well, let's do this. Open your Bibles to Luke 13. When you find verse 31, why don't you do this? stand? I'll read our passage. You can follow along. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. Here's what Luke writes. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Yet it is necessary that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day because it's not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather and to hear what it is that you would say to us. Lord, sharpen our minds. Soften our hearts. Ready us to hear from you. Lord, I pray that that each and every one of us would hear you speaking to us this morning from your word. Give us a willingness, Lord, to receive what you would say. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, day after day, as we've been following along through the gospel of Luke, We've seen that Jesus has been teaching his disciples, but not just his disciples, there have been crowds of people, massive crowds who have been coming to, to, to see the miracles Jesus was performing, even to be healed by him. And as Jesus taught one large group after another, he, he began to, to be noticed, both by the local governmental authorities and by the culture itself. They were both forming their opinions about Jesus. In both the culture and the government authorities, they began to push back against Jesus, against the authority with which Jesus spoke to those whom listed, listened. You see, Jesus presented himself not as a spiritual advisor and not as a, a great teacher, but as one who had the ultimate authority. Jesus presented himself, he taught as God Almighty clothed in human flesh. Jesus didn't just offer truth, he defined it. He didn't just teach morality, he determined it. And Jesus didn't just offer advice, optional considerations, opinions that are well worth your consideration. No. Rather, in his teaching, Jesus called those who would follow him to obedience, to full submission to himself. In fact, even to worship, to worship him as God. He spoke with authority, With sovereignty, he was in charge. There was no question about that. And neither the culture nor the government authorities liked that dynamic. The government and the culture back then, well, they're just like the government and the culture today. They want to be in charge. They want to be the ones who are the authority. And so they began to push back against Jesus. Look at verse 31. At that time, uh, some Pharisees came to Jesus and they told him, Get out of here, go. Herod wants to kill you. Uh, it's odd, isn't it? To see a Pharisee warning Jesus helping him to avoid trouble with Herod. I don't know, maybe they just wanted to get rid of him, maybe not, we don't really know. Usually the Pharisees opposed Jesus. Uh, they are were often trying to curry favor with the Roman authorities, and that's, uh, that's exactly what Herod is. This is Herod Antipas. He's one of the sons of Herod the Great. He, he is technically referred to as the Tetrarch. He is uh, one of those who had been picked by Rome to govern over a certain region. In Herod's case, it was over the region of Galilee. So it's a strange dynamic to see a Pharisee warn Jesus. But hey, you know what? We're going to see stranger things in the days to come. After all, verse 14 is all about Jesus joining a dinner party with some Pharisees. Notice in this that Jesus was friendly even towards those who were against him. Oh, he, he often spoke truth to them. He often rebuked or rebutted them, but he was friendly toward them. His disposition was determined by his character, not by the actions or reactions or attitudes of those around him. That's key, isn't it? That, that's important. You and I, our disposition. Our disposition towards those who are against us, it's it's not to be determined by them. It's not to be determined by how they treat us, how they react to us, what they do to us, but rather our disposition is also to be determined not by our character. That would probably be a step in the wrong direction, but by the character of Christ. Our disposition towards others is to be shaped by the one who indwells us. Paul talks about this in Romans 12. He says this, if your enemy is hungry, enjoy it. No, that isn't what he says, is it? If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, and we misunderstand this often, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. And almost as if to clarify this analogy that he gives us, he says, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Understand this, this whole thing about heaping coals, it's a picture of blessing someone. It's not a Christian way of hurting your enemy without getting in trouble. That, that's not it, okay? That That's not what it is. It, it may not be obvious today in our culture, but this is a picture of, of sharing your literal fire. Think of this, living in a home before heating systems, before stoves, you would have a fire going all of the time in order to cook your food, in order to keep warm at night. And if your fire would go out, you would need to borrow some. And so this is talking about heaping some coals of fire and giving it to a neighbor. It's a way of helping them of blessing them. That's what Jesus is telling us to do to our enemies. That makes no sense unless we remember that our battle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Man, that's hard to remember, isn't it? People offend us. They hurt us. They, they, they oppose us. And what do we want to do? We want to fight back. We want to fight back against them. We want to get them and get them good. And yet we've got to remember our battle, you and I who are in Christ, our battle, it's not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against other people. Oh, they may be fighting against us, but we're not fighting against them. Our battle is a spiritual battle and our enemy is a spiritual enemy. Those other people, well, we've got to remember that they're just lost sheep. They're just lost sheep. We shouldn't be fighting against them. Well, so what do we do? How does Jesus respond? How does he respond to the fact that, that a government ruler wants to kill him? Well, look at verse 32. Jesus said, go tell that fox. That's not a compliment. He's not saying he's good looking. It's, you know, if you're from the 80s, it, He's not saying, oh, he's crafty. He says, look, I'm driving out demons. I'm performing healings today and tomorrow. I got stuff to do, Herod. I've got stuff to do. And on the third day, I'll complete my work. And Yet it is necessary that I travel, travel, leaving today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it is not possible for a prophet to perish where Jesus is at in Galilee but rather he must go to Jerusalem. So understand this. Jesus is not at all intimidated by Herod's threat. Okay? Even though Herod was fully capable of doing what he had threatened. We know this, don't we? Herod had murdered Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist. Yes, it's that Herod. He's the one who had murdered John the Baptist, a prophet who had been speaking against him. So Herod could have done this. Yet Jesus was not intimidated. In fact, when he calls him a fox, it's a term that means something that is destructive but insignificant. You know, there are two truths that made Jesus unflappable in the face of some very real danger, you and I, you and I, we should be clinging to those truths. We should be letting our lives be shaped by them. Those, those truths should shape how we respond to the reality of the, the dangerous world in which we are living we should not be living in fear we sang it again and again this morning right no longer a slave to fear no longer a slave to fear and we shouldn't be we shouldn't be we don't need to live in fear not not of sickness not of death We don't need to live in fear of of a world that is spinning wildly towards its own destruction. Hey, guys, nothing is bigger than Jesus, right? Nothing is bigger than Jesus and nothing can keep us from his love for us. If we are running and hiding from anything, we need to step back. We need to remind ourselves of these truths. First, we need to remember that God is in control. God is in control. God who created all that exists, God who sustains the world day to day, God who raised Jesus from death. And as Psalm thirty-three eighteen 18 says, God who keeps his eye on those who fear him. Well, that's comforting, isn't it? Isn't that good to know that the God who created the whole universe, the God who sustains it day to day, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, his eye is on you. He hasn't lost you in the shuffle. You ever feel like that? Yeah. I think we we all do at times, right? He hasn't. His eye is on you. Secondly, we need to remember that our goal in this life isn't survival. (laughs) And it isn't to live untouched by trouble or difficulty or persecution. Our goal, our goal is to arrive in heaven, which means eventually we do die or he takes us. But our goal is to arrive in heaven having been faithful. We want to get to the end, right? That that is the goal is to get to the other side. And we want to get there and we want to hear Jesus say what? Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful, faithful. You know, Jesus is not going to congratulate anyone on having lived a long life. Wow, congratulations, you avoided heaven for a long time. Way to go. I mean, you didn't do anything. You lived in a hole in the ground, but you were safe. And he won't reward us for successfully avoiding difficulties. Not even the difficulty of living our lives smack dab in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Guys, we have made idols out of comfort and safety and control. And because of that, we have hamstrung our own efforts to live as ambassadors for Christ because there is nothing comfortable or safe or under control about being an ambassador for the king in the midst of a world that has rebelled against him. Every ounce of our strength, every minute of our time that we give to pursuing the good life here and now It's misspent because the good life isn't found in this world. Instead, we need to be those who are willing to live with difficulty and even suffering as we follow Christ and as we represent him to a world in rebellion, to those who are lost, knowing that our reward, that the good life for us will last for all eternity. That's the biblical picture of what this life is supposed to be like for the disciple of Jesus. Let's think about some of those verses that we don't write on our living room walls. Things like 2 Timothy 3.12, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Can you see that in calligraphy in your dining room? Maybe it should be. How about Psalm "One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. Now be careful how you read that. Be careful how you read that, because we want to read it as if it says the Lord doesn't let us experience those at all. But if we have them and have to be rescued from them, that means we will experience them. God doesn't shield us from trouble and pain. I don't know, maybe you've noticed that in life. But he does use trouble and pain for our good. And he does rescue us out of them, even when that rescue comes in taking us to heaven. Consider Romans chapter 5. There, verses 3 through 5, it lays out this beautiful ascending picture. He starts off saying, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. What, Paul? Are you nuts? We can rejoice. We can celebrate. We can be so glad when we run into problems and trials. Why? For we know that they help us. Develop strength of character and on and on. God builds into our lives things that we would never have without first experiencing these things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it reassures us that our present troubles, comparatively, are small, won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and that will last forever. So Jesus knew that his father was in control and he knew that his task wasn't survival, that it was the cross. And so he stayed focused on and he stayed committed to his assigned task to the very end, right? That's what we see there in the garden of Gethsemane. We'll read about it in Luke 22 when we get there. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, we're to walk in his steps. We're to follow his lead. You and I too need to hold firm to the task we've been given. We can't let anything move us off of that. And not a global pandemic and not cultural implosion. We must be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Don't let fear dissuade you from doing what God has called us to do. Remember 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity. Are are you bound with fear? Are you bound with timidity? That's not from God. That's the enemy trying to shackle you, trying to keep you from that to which God has called you. But God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. There's a ditch on both sides of this road. There always is, right? On one side, we fall off into fear. On the other side of the road, no one in North Idaho is like this, but in other places, I hear they are. They let rebelliousness distract them. Notice that Jesus says in verse 33, in response to the fact that Herod wants to kill him, he says, hey, I've got stuff to do. But he says, I am moving on. I am leaving Herod's territory. Jesus says, I am leaving Galilee. I'm leaving the, uh, the region that Herod is sovereign over and I am going up to Jerusalem. He's not leaving because he's afraid, but he's leaving because that is where his task requires him to go. Some of us are so stinking rebellious that all the enemy has to do to get us to do something is have someone tell us that we're not allowed to do it. Right? And then all of a sudden we have this passionate thing about doing just that. Friends, we don't represent Christ. We don't represent Christ when we have a rebellious heart. There are times. There are times. And I think we will see them more and more as time goes on. There are times that we have to rebel against this world and its systems. There are times we must stand on the outside, and go against that which we are being told from the governmental or cultural authorities. But if our default setting is rebellion, we're wrong. We're not following Jesus. It's no good to reject the government or the culture's usurpation of authority over you if all you do is then replace it with your own usurpation of authority. Instead of letting the government or the culture boss you around, if you take the throne, that's no better. That isn't what he calls us to. What he calls us to is to put him on the throne of our lives, to submit ourselves and our living to him. And then the thing that's hardest for us is he then calls us to live a life of humility and submission to others, right? Think of Ephesians 5. For the sake of Christ, submit yourselves to one another. Oh, we don't like that. Scripture says that that we should be humble and submissive by nature. Paul talking to Titus, Uh, Titus, who's leading uh, leading a church. And in Titus 3, 1, he says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities and to obey, to be ready for every good work. That's the default setting, humility, submission. Jesus was not a rebel wandering from fight to fight. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we better close down the bars because Jesus is in town, you know. We don't want all the fights to break out. He wasn't going around just, uh, just picking these fights. Uh, rather, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he says about himself, I am lowly and humble in heart. This is how Jesus describes himself. And you and I, we are to walk like he walked. We are to, to represent him to the world around us. And we have got to figure out how to do this. We've got to figure out how to do this in the midst of a world that is opposing us as we seek to represent the King of Kings. How do we we come with a humble heart and a submissive spirit and yet stand strong in the face of opposition? This is no longer a theoretical question for us, is it? We've got to figure this out. We've got to learn how to submit even when we don't like it, while at the same time holding fast to all the God commands of us, no matter who is opposing us. Never bending. Never bending when it comes to representing Christ, and yet being lowly and humble in heart as we deal with others. It wasn't just the government, okay? It wasn't just the government that was opposing Jesus. His own people, his own people, his own culture was turned against him. Look at verse 34. Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Do you hear his heart? Do you hear his love for these people who are rejecting him? He says, see, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus cared about, he he ministered to, his heart was for, he had compassion for those who rejected him. That got played out by the fact that he was gentle while they were brutal. That he asked the Father to forgive them even before they acknowledged their sin. His heart was for those who were opposing him. Is that the attitude we take? Is that our heart towards those who would mock us, who would criticize us, who would live in defiance of our morality? Should be. Our heart should be for them. Jesus said that those who would hate him would hate us if we are representing him. John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. If you represent Jesus, some people are simply going to hate you. And you should respond to them how Jesus responded. Should love them. Should love them. That's hard, isn't it? Remember what Jesus says, Matthew chapter five: love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And when it says pray for those who persecute, it doesn't mean God smite them. It's not praying against them. It's praying for them. Friends, we are to walk how Jesus walked. We are to model our response to this world on Jesus's response to this world. We're to take his overwhelming love for us. Friends, this is the only way that you will love your enemies or your spouse. Sometimes there isn't much difference. Is if you will take the overwhelming love love of God and let it flood into you and let it overwhelm you to the point that it flows through you to others. The well of love in your life runs dry on a regular basis, doesn't it? There are days you go down to see if there's any love in the bottom of the well and you just hear the bucket hit the ground. There's nothing there. Nothing's there. It's dry. There is no love within your soul. The love of God is bottomless and endless. It never runs out. And if we will learn to not only receive that love, but let it flow through us and to love others with the love with which God has first loved us, if we will learn to love because he has first loved us, we'll find that love is more powerful than hate. And we'll be able to be like Jesus. When we look at those who oppose us, who resist us, our heart will long to gather them up and love them, even if they wanna kill us. Jesus' love was so strong that he went to the cross. He went to the cross and he went knowing that the people that he loved were the ones who would seek to crucify him and yet he didn't condemn them. Even though judgment would come and he talks about it here. He says judgment had to come, yet he left the door open. Think about this. Some of those who cried out, crucify him. Some of them were the same ones who cried out, what must we do to be saved? And the answer is put your trust in the one who died in your place. They cried out, crucify him, and yet he died for them. Now, judgment had to come to God's people. Jesus talks about it here. They had rejected their Messiah. And so, as Jesus says in verse 35, their house was desolate. God had removed his manifestation of his presence from the temple long before. And he'd removed his hand of protection from the nation. And soon, in 70 AD, the nation and the temple would be eradicated. The people would be scattered to the Gentile nations until the last days, until the days that you and I are living in. Do you ever think about that? That it, it, what it talks about in scripture as being the time of the last days when Israel would come back to the land. Hey, that was 1948. That's like ancient history to us, right? But in 1948, the nation of Israel, it it was established in a day, just like Isaiah said it would. Isaiah 66, Isaiah says this, who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day or a nation delivered in an instant? The answer is yes, by the way. Isaiah says, yet as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her son. The nation of Israel reborn in a day, reestablished in the land. We have the privilege of living in these days. Jesus had a job to do. He came to go to the cross. He came to save us. He left the workings of history and the balance of justice in God's hands, and so should we. Jesus stayed on task. He stayed on course. And aren't you glad? What have you seen here today? I I hope, I hope more than anything that you've seen Jesus. That you've seen Jesus. Hopefully, you've seen that Jesus was not intimidated, not because he was impervious to harm. I mean, he was beaten, he was crucified. But he was not intimidated because he was living for eternity. He wasn't dissuaded from his calling by difficulty, by pain, by suffering, but rather he just kept loving those who were opposing him. He wasn't focused on winning fights, he was focused on winning our salvation both through his death in our place and through winning our hearts with his love. And we're to live like Jesus lived. We're to walk in his footsteps. We must, we must in our day learn how to stand strong despite opposition, even governmental opposition, without letting ourselves being pulled into being oppositional or rebellious in nature. Instead, we've got to stay locked onto God's assigned mission for us and live our lives for that. We must understand that victory here is not our goal. Faithfulness to the assigned task to representing the savior to a world in rebellion, that's our job. Persecution, even death, they aren't defeat. Quite honestly, they are irrelevant to us. They are things that just should not be, be factored in. We've got to remember not to treat those who are opposing us as enemies, but like Jesus, to seek to gather and to protect those who would even kill us. And like Jesus, to love them to the very end. Friends, if we master that, if we allow Him to work this in our lives, our community, our world will never be the same. Eternity will be changed. Oh, there might be some rough years ahead, especially if we embrace what we're called to. But all eternity will more than make up for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to be here, we get to hear from you. God, I pray that we would take the things that that we've heard this morning, we'd place them up against your word. We'd let you be the judge. Both of the message and of our own lives. I pray you'd transform us. By the power of your spirit, you would take your word and you'd shape us and form us. God, that we would be your ambassadors, filled with your love. Immovable. Lord, unshakable. Standing for the things that you would have us stand for. That we would be representing you to this world. We'd be seeking their salvation just as you sought ours. That we'd point to the cross. And that we'd cling to the cross. And that you'd work in our midst. We pray it all in Jesus' name.